Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Women talk more than men. Text messaging makes you stupid. Chimpanzees have language just like humans. These are some of the most popular ideas about language that many people think are true. Rumor also has it that men are more direct in their use of language than women. Women speak more correctly than men. Being bilingual makes you smarter. The most beautiful language in the world is French. A myth-busting new study of how language really works is set to blow the lid off conventional wisdom on everything from linguistic sex differences to the impact of technology on language. That's how Cambridge University Press describes Abby Kaplan's book, Women Talk More Than Men and Other Myths About Language Explained. Abby Kaplan is assistant professor of linguistics at University of Utah, and she joins me for the hour following the news. Hope you'll join us.
Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Women talk more than men. Text messaging makes you stupid. Chimpanzees have language just like humans. These are some of the most popular ideas about language that many people think are true. Rumor also has it that men are more direct in their use of language than women. Women speak more correctly than men. Being bilingual makes you smarter, and the most beautiful language in the world is French. A myth-busting new study of how language really works is set to blow the lid off conventional wisdom on everything uh, from linguistic sex differences to the impact of technology on language. That's how Cambridge University Press describes Abby Kaplan's book, Women Talk More Than Men and Other Myths About Language Explained. Abby Kaplan is assistant professor of linguistics at University of Utah. The book is now out from Cambridge University Press. Abby Kaplan uh, joins us for the hour. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to uh, good to be with you. Uh, so this is a uh, pr- provocative uh, title. I wonder uh, how how this book come about. Well, I teach a course at the University of Utah called Language Myths, um, and. Um, what we do in the course is we look at a number of popular ideas about language, and we compare the popular idea to what it is that linguists have actually learned. And so the, the material for the book came out of the material that we discuss in the course. Yeah, what's the goal of the, of the course, and I guess of uh, the book as well? Um, two goals. So the first goal is just to talk about some, some popular um, areas of language and to give people a sense of what it is that linguists have learned about those areas. So things like sex differences, or uh, language and other species, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the second goal is I want to give people the chance to sort of look under the hood and see how it is that linguists study language. So how, when linguists say, well, we know X, how do we know that? How would we go about trying to learn these things? Um, I, I, I guess uh, the, the uh, students in your class would be self-selected, right? They, they would have an interest in language, linguistics. Yeah, um, we get a mix. We get uh, a lot of linguistics majors, but also a lot of non-majors. The course uh, uh, is also a general education, um, fulfills a general education requirement. So we also get some who just uh, saw the title and thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an interesting way to, to get into it, uh, myths about language, and then you explode those myths or, or I guess, modify them. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me jump in the, the first one. This Women talk more than men. This is in... Uh, most, if not all, of, of these myths uh, have currency in the popular press. This is one that's, I think, been taken as given. It would, uh, I've thought this. I've just received yeah. it from the press and, uh, with, you know, uncritically. Yeah, and, you know, if you, uh, if you Google, you know, uh, linguistic sex differences, that kind of thing, you'll often find sort of pop science writing with these really authoritative-sounding numbers, things like women use... 50,000 words a day, men use 25,000 words a day. And those numbers, it turns out they are completely made up. Um, we don't know where they came from. They seem to have been plucked out of thin air. Um, but the best, uh, the very best study on this um, that looked at several hundred men and women, there is, there is just no difference, um, no overall difference in how much men and women talk. No, no overall difference. So this is uh, not only an example of linguistics, but this is an example of how misconceptions can really take hold. Yeah, um, it partly seems to be a case of uh, pop science articles sort of uh, referring to each other, right? You see an article that has these numbers, you say, well, I'll use them, even though it turns out ultimately they're not, not based on anything. Mm-hmm. Now, what the, let's take the, the myth first and then, and then the science. Uh, so what is the myth saying, do you think? Is this positive or negative with regard to a view of women or, or men? It, it 
often gets framed in negative terms, although sometimes it gets framed neutrally. Um, but you'll often see discussions of this along the lines of, well, um, not only do women talk uh, a lot, but it will sometimes be presented as women talk too much or women talk about the wrong things. So the stereotype is the, the wife who uh, loves to gossip, whereas the husband is the you know, silent type who comes home from work and just wants to watch TV, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of globally and historically, it's not universally true, but it is very often true that uh, whatever the society thinks is the difference between men and women, uh, the idea is that whatever the thing men do, that is often believed to be better. Uh, so it's a very, a very common kind of situation. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, I guess I've been comfortable in, in this particular myth because I've, just in my anecdotal experience, I, I have often uh, carry out a, an experiment when I'm walking down the, the sidewalk and I notice couples coming toward mm-hmm. me. I notice, I try to notice which one is speaking, mm-hmm. and often, from my observation, it's the woman. Mm-hmm. But that, I guess I'm seeing patterns, and it probably is, I'm fitting those into a preconceived notion. It's quite possible. One of my favorite studies on this actually um, got, uh, got people to listen to pre-recorded conversations, um, and then they would ask them, in this conversation, who talked more, the man or the woman? And what they found was that people would often say that the woman talked more, even if the two people actually spoke the same amount. So we may abs- absolutely we perceive that women may be talking more, um, even if it turns out that, that they're not necessarily doing so. And we tend to do this, as humans, we tend to do this a lot, don't we? we? We tend to see patterns, but then we ascribe much more weight to those patterns than perhaps um, the, the science would bear. Exactly. That's a very, very human, uh, very human thing. Yeah. Uh, so what, uh, uh, have there been studies done on this? That I, I guess that uh, you're saying yes, and, and they've shown that uh, men and women speak the, the same amount? Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of studies that have been done in the lab, um, and of course these have their limitations because what people do in the lab is not necessarily what they do in real life. Um, in the lab, interestingly, Um, What often happens is if you bring people in and say, do this task, so maybe solve a puzzle or have a discussion or something like that, um, you'll often find that men talk more. Not every time, but a lot of people who've done this have found this. Um, But as far as everyday behavior goes, um, the best one was done with several hundred um, college students from the United States and from Mexico. Um, And what they did was they recorded samples of their conversation over a period of days, so this was during their ordinary everyday activities, studying, working, eating lunch, folding laundry, whatever. And what they found was that when you had, you know, real data from what people really do on an everyday basis, there was, there was no difference. There was huge variation in terms of people, right? Some people talk a lot, some people talk a little. Um, but in terms of the two groups, there was, there was just no difference. Hmm. Uh, have there been any studies on what men and women want to talk about. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of every relationship I've ever had, which uh, I've, I've never been the one to, to say, let's talk about the relationship. It's always, it's always been the woman. And maybe I'm just revealing myself. But I think I've you know talked to other men. <laughs> That's just one example, getting far too personal there. But uh, the kinds of things that men and women uh, talk about. Sure, yeah. So certainly um, one way that you can... I guess, manipulate how much people talk in a laboratory setting is depending on the subject that you give people to talk about. Um, If people um, happen to know more about that subject or happen to think that they know more about that subject, 
then they'll often, you know, they'll, they'll talk more about it. Um, so certainly if you uh, bring people into the lab and ask them to talk about sporting activities, then you may see men talking more either because they know more about it or because they think they're expected to know more. Uh, if you bring people into the lab and ask them to talk about uh, clothing, then women may feel expected to know more. And um, uh, that, I think, is a good example of the fact that the, the specific claim that women talk more doesn't turn out to be true, but it's also very easy to find differences between men and women that are real. Um, and uh, when we find these, the interesting next question to ask is where does that come from? Um, it could be a biological difference, but it also could be a social difference that um, uh, men and women are um, expected to behave in certain ways and respond to expectations by, by doing that. Yeah, to follow up on that, one thing you say is that uh, might be minor differences between the way men and women speak, but they're situation-specific, culture-specific, right? They're not universal. Right. One of my favorite examples of this is that uh, in the West, we have this idea that men tend to be direct and aggressive, that women are uh, polite and indirect. Um, but this isn't universally true. So, for example, in rural Madagascar, it's been documented that uh, there is exactly the opposite belief. Men are believed to be indirect and polite, and women just don't have enough self-control, and so women are the uh, aggressive ones. And, of course, in that community, that's actually, probably actually true, right, that women are, in fact, more aggressive, just as in the United States you can often find men behaving more aggressively. And that example suggests to a lot of linguists that we're not just dealing with biology, we're dealing with um, also the community in which we grew up and the uh, groups that we consider ourselves a part of. Hmm. So very much cultural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I want to move on to, uh, I mean, I want to get to as many of these as I can, but uh, the next one gets us into very interesting aspects of language. Uh, the myth is French is the most beautiful language. Mm-hmm. I think you you conducted experiments with your classes, didn't you, on this? Um, informal experiments, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I uh, have asked my students to do is to interview a few uh, a few people they know and ask them, what's an example of a language that you find beautiful and why? Um, and sometimes people will say, well, I like French or whatever because it sounds nice. But people will often very openly say, well, I like, you know, Portuguese because I have some Portuguese-speaking friends, and so I associate Portuguese with these, these wonderful people I know, um, uh, which suggests that people are aware at some level that it, it when we – uh, evaluate how we feel about a language. It's not just the language itself, but all the things that we associate with that language. Uh, you mentioned Portuguese. Uh, I've, I've for a long time thought, for, for me, Portuguese is the most beautiful, and it's just the sound of the language. I'm probably, though, there, there's some culture and, and I guess some thoughts I have about, uh, you know, maybe Portuguese culture, Brazilian culture bleeding through there. Mm-hmm. Very possibly. And, it's, and, and for French also, it's probably not a coincidence that the language that is popularly believed to be very beautiful, we also associate with delicious food and beautiful music and fine poetry um, and that kind of thing. Um, certainly, it's, it's absolutely true that individuals can have reactions to particular languages and just really, really like them and really, or really not like them, as the case may be. Um, um, it's less clear that there's, say, some language that will evoke that reaction from, from everybody, right, in the sense of being just so obviously beautiful that everyone will will react that way. Uh, so, uh, and I guess conversely, uh, languages we, we feel are ugly. I guess that would be the same principles would, would apply to your experience with the language? Yeah, so, so um, when I have my students 
ask their friends for examples of languages that people think are, are ugly, often the top couple of, of languages people mention are German and Russian. Um, and it's probably not a coincidence that we associate uh, German with watching movies about World War II. We associate Russian with the Cold War. Um, um, a, another interesting thing about that is that with German, people will often mention the type sound uh, as a sound that they, uh, that they don't enjoy. Um, the interesting thing about that is that French has these kinds of sounds too, but I don't really hear people complaining about the R sound in French. Um, so there's something about our associations with the language that can sometimes even override what we're hearing. Mm -hmm. I uh, need to, uh, or don't need to. I'd want to add here that uh, it's it's very interesting the experience you have with the language, what you're hearing. Uh, I lived in Argentina, LDS mission for a couple of years. When I came back, uh, got to the airport in Miami, um, I just felt like th th that hard American R was just grating on my ears. Everybody was a pirate, an R R, you know, uh, because I hadn't heard that for a couple of years. Yeah, as, as we get experience with language, um, particularly in childhood, but it, even in adulthood, you're you're training your brain to hear certain sounds and not hear other other sounds. And yeah, extended with the experience with the language is gonna um, is gonna modify your expectations about what you're going to hear. Uh, coincidentally, uh, I'll bring this in. I noticed that uh, one of the research papers you did uh, had to do with the development of lamb versus lamp. I wanted to talk a little bit about that, and and your conclusion was somewhat surprising. It, I guess the the thought would have been because you. I guess we used to pronounce the word lamb with the b at the end, right? We used to have a lot of words that that ended with a with an mb sound. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so the I guess one of the theories was that we dropped that because it was harder to say. Mm -hmm. That's with one of the with any kind of sound change. That's always one of the possibilities. But your but your conclusion was was different. Yeah, that um, essentially that it's harder to hear. Um, yeah. Uh, so I looked at um, comparing, say, words that end in n, so uh, nonsense words, so like you know, und versus un, and what I discovered was that people had a really hard time telling whether the duh sound was there. Uh, so similarly for you know, lamb versus lamb, if it's a little bit hard to hear if the b was there anyway, well, sort of why bother saying it. Mm -hmm. um, in a sense, whereas lamb versus limp, that, uh, the fact that the P is there, that's very, very um, auditorily salient. Yeah. I wonder if you could, I, I don't know, Just this just came to, to mind. Um, sooner or later, everything comes back to Monty Python. Uh, so this is this is you know, just taken straight from popular culture, but they, they were, you know, they, they pronounced the word knigget. Night. Oh, yes. Is, is that true, or did they, are they making that up? Um, it, yeah, so the, the word used to have that initial... Uh, cluster and uh, we've in English we've just systematically lost all of those so knight and knife and me and all those um, and then also the um, uh, the, the GH um, at one point in the past was more of a uh, type sound um, and in fact the related German word today is uh, knecht um, and so we've lost also that that sound as well and so we're just left with knight spelled in a very surprising way 
Okay, okay. Good to know I can rely on Monty Python for, mm-hmm. for my linguistic. <laughs> Wouldn't want to rely on them for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking with Abby Kaplan. Her interesting book is Women Talk More Than Men and Other Myths About Language Explained. It's out from Cambridge University Press. As we go along, we're going to talk about uh, text messaging. One of the myths that uh, Abby Kaplan explodes is that text messaging makes you stupid. When chimpanzees have language just like humans, uh, being bilingual uh, makes you more intelligent. Uh, we need to speak to our kids to, so that they'll develop a language. A lot of myths, uh, and we'll talk about as many as we can. We're involving you, hopefully, in the conversation as well at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And uh, you can reach us by email to upr.org, upr.org. And we do have an email uh, that's come in from uh, Steve, um, so we'll get to that right now. Uh, this is what Steve says. He provides a link to uh, an article in Scientific American, uh, and he says, As we know, as science advances, new insights and theories upset the apple cart as they replace those that served well before. Noam Chomsky's linguistic theories did just that when, we, when they took the world by storm many decades ago and established themselves as science's best understanding of the neurological underpinning of human language. And now it looks like the same thing is happening again 50 years later as Chomsky's theory is being overtaken and displaced. I'm wondering what insights your guest might have into the latest revolution in linguistic theory. Um, so uh, certainly what Chomsky said was, was, um, was revolutionary at the, at the time. Um, uh, what Chomsky was responding to was what was known as behaviorism, um, and this was a, a sort of broader tendency in psychology to um, uh, to observe behaviors, um, but not to speculate about sort of internal mental states. Um, and uh, it, what Chomsky did was he um, provided some conceptual and also some formal tools for trying to analyze the, the structure of language as it might be represented in an individual's brain. Um, the specifics of his formalism, um, um, I'm not sure that, um, in terms of what's happening today, uh, certainly there are lots of people still using the theoretical descendants of what Chomsky did, uh, in particular his formalisms for describing sentence structure. There are still people working in the, the descendants of that. Um, but there are also people who, who are not. Um, and I, I'm not sure that um, it, it's not the case, for example, that um, over the course of, of two or three years, all of a sudden everybody started saying that Chomsky was wrong. Um, but one thing that's been happening is that uh, linguists in many different subfields have, uh, over the past several decades, become much more interested in looking at quantitative data, um, looking at uh, you know, statistics and how much more frequent is this thing than that thing. Uh, which was something that Chomsky was never big, a big fan of. Um, and so I think the beautiful situation you have now is that you have linguists approaching the question of how does language work using lots of different theoretical tools, lots of different empirical tools. Um, so in a sense, the, um, uh, the basic contribution of Chomsky is still very important. Um, there's certainly a, a lively debate um, that as to some of his specific ideas. So one of his ideas is that we are born with the sort of neural wiring prepared to learn language, that this is species-specific, and that a lot of what we're going to know, going to need, is specific to language and, and comes with us, you know, out of the womb. Um, and not all linguists 
uh, agree with that, but it's certainly a lively discussion. I'm not sure that you could say that you know the foundations of linguistics are crumbling or that the foundations of Chomsky's are crumbling. Um, but you have certainly and have had for decades a, a lively debate about what exactly do we know about where does language come from. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Steve's written back in. He says, I've never before heard P Portuguese mentioned as one of the most beautiful sounding languages. Uh, yet this morning your guest mentions it as a most beautiful language. And you mentioned Portuguese as your candidate for the most mellifluous language. I think you're referring to me. And though uh, French is to my ear the most beautiful language, Portuguese runs a close second. Is Portuguese finally having its moment on Axis Utah this morning? I, I guess so, uh, Steve. Um, and he says parenthetically, and yes, Kanigat used to be, or Knight used to be pronounced as it is uh, spelled. So thanks for that, uh, that uh, Steve. And, and I think, Steve, I would say yeah, mellifluous, that's a good way to... to I, ju I just love the sound of, of Portuguese. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love when I ask students to collect examples of languages people find beautiful, um, one of my favorite things is the, the surprising languages. You know, there's someone who really loves the sound of uh, Malaysian, or there's someone who really loves the sound of, um, you know, Slovak or, or whatever it is. And uh, to me that illustrates that um, that it, no language is irredeemably ugly. That um, you know, if you're in the in the right circumstance, uh, hey, I'm a linguist. I think languages are great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as you mentioned before, it, it, culture. It's it's I don't know, impossible or almost impossible to separate language from culture, isn't it? So, right. for Portuguese, I I might be you know maybe bossa nova is is wending its way in there. You know, my love for for mm -hmm. bossa nova, Portuguese or Brazilian music. Um, Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, more with uh, Abby Kaplan. She is uh, Assistant Professor of Linguistics at University of Utah. Her uh, book out from Cambridge University Press, very interesting book, Women Talk More Than Men and Other Myths About Language Explained. You can join the conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can reach us uh, to uh, our email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. One of the best skills a leader can develop is the ability to ask questions. Not questions with an implied solution, but neutral, non-judgmental questions that show respect for employee commitment. For example, why is that important? What would our customers think? Why are you committed to this course of action? How does that make you feel? There is no judgment in these questions, just honest curiosity that assumes the employee is committed and gives the employee respect. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu Join us for music for yoga, relaxation, and meditation on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. You'll hear songs like Om Hari Om Sharanam Ganesha by New Orleans yoga instructor Sean Johnson and his Wild Lotus Band. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with Abby Kaplan, Assistant Professor of Linguistics at University of Utah. Her book from Cambridge University Press is called Women Talk More Than Men and Other Myths About Language Explained. Uh, Some of the myths uh, dealt with in the book, texting makes you illiterate. The most beautiful language is French. We've talked about that. My language limits my thoughts. Definitely want to talk about that later in the program. Um, being bilingual uh, makes you uh, smarter or dumber, as, as the case uh, may be, and many other myths. We're talking about the interesting subject of language uh, on the program today, and you are welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I want to bring in uh, just a part of a song here. Um, this is song I was listening to again last night and uh, connected it up with our conversation uh, today. This, uh, and I think many people are familiar with this. Um, this is the band Snow Patrol, and uh, which you would think might be a Utah band or in the West, but I think it's an Irish band. Uh, Snow Patrol and their, their song, which was a big hit for them just a few years ago, uh, called Chasing Cars. Let's just hear the beginning of the song uh, into the first chorus. We'll do it all Everything On our own We don't So a yeah, beautiful song, um, and uh, and uh, you know I just want to listen to the rest of it. But uh, uh, the point I'm trying to get to here is I enjoy the song, but I'm also thinking it's grammatically incorrect. It's <laughs> he should be singing. If I lie here, would you lie with me? Um, and I don't know. First of all, a professor of linguistics, uh, I don't know. Do you join me in that, or does, does it not matter? It, it does not matter. Um, okay. Um, so what, the, the fundamental, I think the most, uh, one of the most important uh, discoveries of, of linguistics is that it doesn't matter who you study, it doesn't matter what language or what dialect of a language you study, everybody follows grammatical rules. Um, and in different dialects, different languages, those rules may be different. Um, but uh, people follow rules. So when people do things that, uh, you know, maybe your high school English teacher told you not to do, it's not that they're lazy or stupid and don't know how to how to speak with, with grammatical rules. They're just using a different uh, set of rules. Uh, so the songwriter here is following rules. It's just he, 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 he's following the rules maybe that I had learned differently. That's what mm-hmm. you're saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I'll try to just enjoy the song, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, one of the uh, uh, myths uh, th- that you have in the book, a dialect is a collection of mistakes. Kind of gets into what we're talking about there. Most kind of socially salient dialects in the United States, for example, uh, and 
the book uh, spends a lot of time on this one, is what linguists call African-American English. Um, in the popular discourse, it's sometimes called Ebonics. Um, uh, but linguists call it African-American English, or AAE. And this is sometimes described as, well, it's people who didn't get enough education or weren't taught by their parents correctly, and so they just can't speak right. Um, but again, when you go and listen to how people actually speak, what you discover are grammatical rules. Um, the, one of the best examples of that is the word be, um, that you'll hear uh, statements in AAE like, he be running. Um, and to a speaker of a different dialect of English, this sounds like a mistake, right? It sounds like you're saying he's running, but you're using the wrong version of be. But in AAE, be um, actually has its, is a grammatical marker that's used to talk about habitual action. So he be running means he runs regularly. It is his habit to run. Whereas just he's running or he running by itself means he's running right now. Hmm. And so that's that's a case of uh, people outside that, that culture are, are not understanding fully what's going on there. Exactly. So if you, hmm. if you hear someone speaking AAE and you don't speak AAE yourself, then you're not going to... Uh, you may miss some of what's being said because you're processing what you hear with a different set of grammatical rules. Well, many of us, though, uh, make judgments, don't we? And, and that's what, you know, your English teacher will tell you. You need to uh, learn to speak uh, correctly, at least at the received version of, uh, of correct English, because you'll be judged in many situations if you speak a different version. That's right. And so linguists uh, are fully acknowledged that not every variety of English or of, or of any other language, but these varieties aren't all socially equal, that um, uh, they, they are linguistically equal. We found no evidence that some varieties are better or more expressive than others or anything like that. But certainly we, we recognize that if you speak AAE in certain contexts, you will be judged, just as if you speak standard English in some contexts, you may be judged. Um, uh, yeah. Mm. And I, I guess the, uh, the judgment need not be... Pejorative judgment. I'm, I'm thinking, just as you were speaking right there, I was thinking of difference between, say, John Milton uh, versus Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman, a very much more colloquial, you know, of the of the streets. John Milton, uh, you know, the the, the sonorous sort of um, would be the word, you know, standard uh, English. Mm-hmm. Both are beautiful. Yeah, and you know, even within a person, um, everybody controls a range of styles, right? Um, so you, I'm, I'm sure that you don't speak to your best friend in the way that you speak, uh, for example, in a job interview. Um, so we all um, recognize different um, uh, ways of speaking that correspond to different situations, and everybody is um, very good at adjusting how you speak based on the situation. It's not that you speak worse to your friend. Um, and in fact, if you spoke really formally to your friend, that would be kind of weird, and your friend mm-hmm. would wonder what's up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess we could try that, but it probably wouldn't work. Um, texting makes you illiterate. This is a worry, I think, that a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can rest easy. Uh, text messaging is not going to harm you, and it's not going to harm your. It's not going to harm the next generation, as far as we know. So it. it I guess there's no. I could. One of my fears would be, uh, you know, it, it, verbal language would would pick up OMG and I, IDK and you know all that all that kind of thing. You see, you know, you see a few isolated vocabulary items, um, um, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not it's not a huge number. Um, and uh, when people have looked at this, um, uh, there have been a number of studies that have 
compared how much people text to, say, their, their GPA or maybe their scores on a spelling test or something like that. Um, and a lot of these studies are a wash. Often they find nothing, that the people who text more don't have better or worse scores on these things. Um, sometimes you'll find a small effect, and, and these studies are just as likely to find a benefit of texting as they are to find that texting is harmful. Um, uh, it's possible, for example, that uh, when you're texting, what you're getting is exposure to print. You're getting practice reading and writing, even if it's not the variety of English that you would read, say, in the New York Times. Hmm. Uh, children have to be taught language. This, that's one I think I subscribed mm-hmm. to, past tense, I guess. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the truth? Uh, the truth is that if children are in a linguistically rich environment, by which I mean basically a normal environment where they're hearing language, they will learn language. We don't have to tell children to follow grammatical rules. Um, as they grow, they will, um, they will learn grammatical Children are pattern-learning machines. Um, and will learn grammatical rules if they have anything like a normal environment. Um, what we found is that parents, even if parents think they're correcting their children's mistakes, um, they're not actually doing it reliably, um, not in a way that would be enough for children to use that information. Um, and there are even communities where adults don't speak to children at all because, well, the kid can't talk back to you, so why would you do that? Um, and children in these com- communities learn to speak perfectly normally, despite the fact that no one is, is trying to teach them colors or animal sounds or things like that. Hmm. Um, it's into the, the, the subject of sign language. So one of the uh, myths in the book, sign language is skilled charades. You have some very interesting things in the book about how uh, children learning verbal language and children learning sign language uh, uh, develops very similarly. Very similarly, yeah. The, the stages that they go through are quite comparable. Um, my, my favorite example is that in ASL, for example, the sign for you, you point at the other person, and the sign for me, you point at yourself. Um, hearing children sometimes go through a stage where they mix up you and me, right, because it takes them a while to work out which one's which, because when I say you, it's, it's me, but then, you know, it's a who's on first kind of thing. Um, um, so hearing children will, will say, like my son, for example, referred to his room for a long time as your room, because that's what we called it. Um, and children learning ASL will sometimes do the same thing. They will point to the other person as a way to refer to themselves at about the same age. Um, and what this suggests is that it's not a pointing gesture. Rather, it's a pronoun, just like you is a pronoun in English, and they have the same trouble with it that hearing children do at a stage. Hmm. Uh, and this, the same areas of the brain are being used, right? Depending on, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Sign language right. versus verbal language. Right. Uh, that signed language is processed in the same areas of the brain as language, which is different from the areas that we use for general visual processing. I wonder, uh, studying these things, and, and then you go home, I think you have uh, two, two children. Mm-hmm. Um, does that affect how you interact in, in terms of language with, with your children? Do you think about that in terms of your parenting practices with regard to language? makes me feel more relaxed um, in the sense that, you know, as, as my children are developing, so I have a son who's two, and of course he's speaking very cutely now, um, I, you know, I know that uh, you know, eventually they'll get it. Whatever funny thing it is they're doing now, eventually they will, they will grow out of it. Um, 
And if not, certainly you know, we have there, you know, for children who do have genuine language impairments, you know, um, there are professionals for that. Um, but I also do a lot of things that I know don't work, but I do them anyway, um, and just with the knowledge that it's okay. So, for example, I, I, you know, there are communities, like I mentioned, where adults just don't talk to children. That's just not what you do. Um, I talk to my kids all the time because that's how I've been socialized in my community. That's how you interact with children. And so I see it as I do it because that's what my community does, not because I think that's the only or the best way to raise a child. It's very, it's culture specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the myths, being bilingual makes you smarter or dumber. Uh, I, I learned this from the book. Uh, I guess that the current uh, conception is that being bilingual, learning more than one uh, language makes you smarter. But uh, in earlier decades, it was the opposite. Yeah, up until about the 1960s, 70s, uh, everybody was convinced that being bilingual is harmful for children. You shouldn't do it. It will, it will it stunt your growth. Um, um, as far as the idea that being bilingual makes you smarter, this one I would could call basically true or almost true. Um, it's not going to turn you into Einstein, um, but to the extent that we have reliable uh, documentation of the effects of bilingualism, lifelong bilingualism, bilingualism in childhood, um, we find lots of evidence for benefits and very, very little evidence for it being harmful. One of the most fascinating passages from the book is, is, I wonder if you'd tell us about this, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, the Valpace region of the Amazon, mm-hmm. where you have uh, many, many languages and mm-hmm. many people speaking all of those languages, or many of those yes. languages. So extensive multilingualism. Yes, you have a, a huge number of languages, and there is a, um, a cultural tradition that you don't marry somebody who speaks the same native language as you, because that's considered a member of your family. Uh, And so um, naturally you're going to have at least two languages spoken by the parents, the children will own those, and the others in the same village. Um, And you get people who just, as a matter of course, know five, six, seven languages, and they don't think anything of it. Uh, so the yeah, that's interesting. The the you're considered to, to be part of a family if you speak the same language. Mm-hmm. That has resonance, I guess, for broader cultures. Uh, but they're taking it to an, ex, an an extreme here. So you're supposed to marry somebody from a different language. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, you're all, you sometimes you know you know in some cases you may not know the language, but of course. If you yourself have grown up speaking lots of these different languages, there's the one that's your father's, your, your father language, which is sort of your language that's your family. But you may, of course, know other languages as well, including, um, I imagine that would make it easier if you know the, the father language of your spouse also. And apparently these la- some of the languages are related, you know, in the same way that Italian and Spanish would be, but, but mm-hmm. other languages in the region are very much unrelated to, to the other languages. Right. Um, and there are some... There's some uh, indigenous uh, traditions, you know, with um, indigenous origin stories about, you know, how some of these might be related to each other. But uh, practically speaking, people just, uh, it seems that this kind of massive bilingualism is not, you know, there's no extensive studying, there's no extensive uh, drilling. People uh, learn them in this community as a normal part of growing up. So what does what does that say then in the end? I guess the the maybe we underestimate the ability, our ability, to mm-hmm. to learn language. Yeah, that in, in many parts of the world, not maybe as much as this, but in many parts of the world, learning you know, knowing two or three languages is just a normal part of life. If you live in a place where there are many languages spoken, 
um, then that's that's what you will do. And so we're we're almost kind of an anomaly in that many people in the United States live in monolingual communities where there's just no opportunity to learn a second language. And it's and of course it gets into politics as well. There's you know there's laws try to legislate language English only and that that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I've always thought it's it's pretty hard to legislate language. It's yeah. I mean you can you can legislate um, you know what official documents do and so on, but certainly it's it's never going to work to try to legislate. Um, uh, well, it, I, I say this it's it's um, much more problematic to try to legislate what people do in their own homes. Um, this has happened. So, of course, there's the ongoing problem of language endangerment and language death. Um, and often in, in these situations arise because you have a majority language that kind of overwhelms a minority language. And, and sometimes this does go along with, uh, you know, children sent off to school and forbidden from speaking their native language. Um, or if a, a language is just not supported, and so people see, think, well, what's the use of this language? I'll just speak you know, English or whatever it may happen to be. Um, or if people are told your language is bad and you're, you know, you're, you're foolish for knowing it. Um, that kind of thing uh, it certainly, certainly can happen. Um, it, it reaches pretty deeply into people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, of course, as, as you point out, that has happened. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I want to t- talk, uh, follow up on language death. Uh, it's not your specific field, I don't think, but, uh, uh, you know, one view would be a Darwinian view that, uh, you know, language is common and they go. Another view, there are people out there trying very hard to, to save language, at least to preserve them. Um, what are your thoughts on what is lost when a language dies? Well, certainly, you know, it, it has always been the case that languages have, uh, languages have always been going extinct. Well, what's different about what we see now is just the speed at which this is happening. Um, and um, there are certainly cases where people um, would say, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not passing my language on to my children, but that is my, that's my free choice, right? But there are also plenty of situations where it has been a choice that has been made for people as opposed to people deciding this for themselves. So if, um, if the language isn't supported, if the children are taken away from the parents and not allowed to speak the language, um, if, people are, if people are told, you know, your language is worthless, then, then it becomes less of a, an autonomous decision and it becomes something that is a decision that's taken away from people. Mm-hmm. We had a, um, a whole episode of this program devoted to invented languages. I wonder what your th- your thoughts are. You know, we talked about uh, Klingon and another, you know, Esperanto. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are on, on invented languages. I, I love the fact that people are, I mean, as a linguist, of course, I'm fascinated by language, and I love the fact that there are so many people who are so fascinated uh, that they enjoy creating their own system. Um, uh, the thing that interests me most is what do people do with language sort of on an everyday basis? Um, and uh, invented languages are, are less likely to tell us about that. But they do still tell us something about how do people play with language, which is, which is certainly another, another aspect of what, what humans do with language. Uh, play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be utilitarian. Yeah. Um, let's take another break. When we come back more, our last segment with Abby Kaplan, who is Assistant Professor of Linguistics at University of Utah. Her new, new book is out from uh, Cambridge University Press called Women Talk More Than Men and Other Myths About Language Explained. And uh, definitely want to talk about this myth, My Language Limits My Thoughts. Also, uh, can animals uh, uh, communicate through language? Chimpanzees can talk to us is the, the name of that uh, chapter talk about those and some other subjects, and you're welcome to join us at 800-826-1495 or UPR 
uh, access at gmail.com. More follows the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community of everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at www.utahwomensgivingcircle.com. Imagine a few eggs in a chicken coop when suddenly little legs poke through the shells and the eggs stand up and start dancing around. It's the ballet of the unhatched chicks from pictures and an exhibition by Mussorgsky on the way from a concert by the Houston Symphony on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Abby Kaplan, who is Assistant Professor of Linguistics at University of Utah. Her book from Cambridge University Press is called Women Talk More Than Men and Other Myths About Language Explained. Uh, so Abby Kaplan, um, Chapter 11, My Language Limits My Thoughts. Here we get into uh, something very fundamental. And you write, there's no denying that speaking and thinking are closely related. We use words to convey ideas to other people, to organize our own thoughts. Um, but this idea that, uh, I guess some people say, my language limits my thoughts. Um, it's, a, it's a really popular idea. Um, and there is, so for a long time, the idea that your language affects your thoughts um, was out of favor in the academic community. Um, recently, uh, we've discovered some ways in which there is evidence that the particular language you speak might affect the way you think. Um, but it turns out that the kinds of effects you can find are often smaller than what a lot of people would imagine they are. Um, so it's not that uh, you have a completely different worldview because of the language you speak, but you might be a tiny bit faster at identifying the difference between two colors, for example, like a few milliseconds, um, things like that. Uh, it, yeah, I've heard this as well, that uh, you, know, you, you, only, you can think only in the words that you have, but I guess that's not necessarily true. Yeah, certainly there are... Um, um, uh, we intuitively we have the feeling that sometimes we might think in pictures or we might think in music. Um, also, um, you know, babies before they have language certainly start to have ideas. Um, or adults who don't have language for whatever reason certainly also there's evidence of, of thinking there. So it seems that language that thought isn't completely dependent on language in that way. You have a section here um, about George Orwell and uh, political language. What do you talk mm -hmm. a bit about that? Yeah, so, so George Orwell, he, in his novel, uh, 1984, he imagined what it would look like if the government, uh, a totalitarian government, tried to limit the thoughts of its citizens by limiting its language. Um, and this has often been taken as prophetic, right? So people will see an example of what they consider to be deceptive political language and say, oh, Orwell was right. Um, but it's not clear that this actually works in practice. So if you look at actual totalitarian regimes, People will use the words that they're required to, but they will give their own private meaning to those words that correspond to what reality is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the word prophetic. Uh, just yesterday, I was viewing a political discussion, and the panel brought up, in connection with Mr. Trump, uh, you know, 1984, George mm -hmm. Orwell. It's, it's very much, uh, you know, in, in the discussion today. But you're saying that, I guess, studies in totalitarian regimes where, you know, where, where this would be practiced, it's opposite speak, uh, people, uh, I guess, they have freedom of thought. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly there's simple lying, right? But we know what that is. Um, 
and even even in the United States, um, you know, think of examples like um, affirmative action or the Patriot Act. Um, these are both policies that have been given very positive names, but among uh, in groups where people have decided that they disagree with the content of those policies, those are now really negative, charged negative terms. So it's not that people were tricked into agreeing with the policy because of the name. Rather, if people decided they didn't like the content of the policy, the connotation of the name uh, for them has changed to their uh, ideas about the policy. Yeah, it, it's true, and I think people, you know, people know that it, it's it's become very popular in in recent decades. I think to uh, you have to come up with a very positive acronym for your bill, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Well, nobody's going to you know pass a law that says this is a law that will benefit all of the people who bribed me. Right. No, nobody's right. going to do that. Right. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or you shouldn't do that. It, it mm-hmm. probably would be uh, counterproductive. Right. And, and then you know that uh, um, uh, subdivisions. It's it's usually it's kind of sad, but the the name of the subdivision usually is named after what used to be there. You know, so yeah, yeah. A- Aspen Grove. They tore down mm-hmm. Aspen Grove to to put the subdivision there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about uh, animals and mm-hmm. uh, language. Just have uh, about three or four minutes left. This uh, chapter is titled "Chimpanzees Can Talk to Us." Mm-hmm. And uh, what's the, the popular conception? What's the popular conception now? The, the popular conception is that there are eight. A couple of famous chimpanzees, Coco the gorilla, who are basically fluent in ASL. Um, and there is um, the research, my reading of the research is that there is some kind of communication going on, but if you actually look at what these conversations look like, it just doesn't look like what humans do. So, for example, um, the great apes will rarely chat just to chat, which even human children do. Um, it's overwhelmingly making requests. Um, you don't see any development of syntactic complexity. Um, it looks a lot like um, changing formulas in order to accomplish goals. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, in the end, uh, what does the science tell us? Is 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 Coco actually, you know, the same things going on in, in the chimpanzee's brain that would go on in a human's brain with regard to sign language? Some of the some of the basic building blocks are there. So certainly, you know, certainly there's communication and making requests, they're very good at this, right? You can communicate what you want to your trainer. Um, but there are also really deep differences, that the difference um, uh, that what Coco does or what Nimchimsky does um, is not anywhere close to what we see any attested human language doing. There's a huge variety in human languages, but what the great apes have done looks even very different from that. So certainly some of the building blocks are the same. Um, but I think it's I think it's misleading to say well it's language and just leave it at that. There's something there's also something different going on. Mm-hmm. I, I've had uh, several pet owners tell me that they have to just like with their children they have to spell out the word veterinarian. You know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the dog's picking that up. But the dog I think could be picking up um, nonverbal cues. Sure. Yeah. Nonverbal cues and you know certainly specific words. Um, um, even though when a, a dog or even an ape. In many cases, even if the, the, um, the individual knows the word, it's not clear that they see that word as a symbol, right? So when I turn a doorknob, that's not a word that means open. It's just what I do to open the door. And similarly, when a great ape signs um, uh, M&M, it may be just what you do to get an M&M, not so much a, a symbol that represents an M&M. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, just one minute for this. Uh, one of your myths: adults cannot learn a new language. And then, uh, you know, I think uh, we 
One of the conceptions we have, I think I share, children are more successful at learning second language with adults. At least it's easier for them. Mm -hmm. That, as far as it goes, seems to be largely true. What we're less clear on is the reason for that. Is it just something about maturation that your brain changes? Um, Is it that adults are doing it wrong and children are doing it right? Um, And that's something that there's actually not a lot of agreement about, even among linguists. Um, uh, Certainly what we don't want to do is blame adults if they struggle, because if there's one thing that second language research has shown us, it's that for adults there are very real uh, obstacles to learning a second language. But it's also not hopeless. Uh, Right, yeah. And I want to put in a plug. Uh, You know, I I think more Americans ought to learn a second language. I think we're we're poorer for, for not having that tradition in our country. I'm all for that. Um, well, very interesting book, uh, Women Talk More Than Men and Other Myths About Language Explained. It's out from Cambridge University Press. The author is Abby Kaplan, who is Assistant Professor of Linguistics at the University of Utah. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. This is Terry Guy, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. UPR is a statewide public radio station serving the citizens of Utah since 1953. Our listeners are educated, socially conscious, and enjoy arts and culture. They are your loyal patrons. If you're looking to make a smart business decision, become a UPR sponsor. For more information, call 435-797-3141.